Hey, thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message today, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. From time to time, Jesus makes some outlandish statements. Uh, I would even go so far as to say outrageous statements. Some of his demands on us are really outrageous, to the point of shocking. Uh, They were definitely shocking to the people who first heard these statements. It's not like everything that came out of his mouth was outrageous, but some of the things were. So much so that some of the folks who were following him and had been following him for months turned around and walked away from him. It was just too much. But we live in a different era, and so we don't think of anything Jesus said to be outrageous. And there there, uh, looks to me like two, one of two reasons why we would find Jesus sometimes not being outrageous when he was outrageous. One is we become so familiar with the stories in the Bible that we, we become immune to the shock. And the other is that we are so unfamiliar with the Bible that we've never really read any of those places where Jesus made an outrageous statement. But he did. And one of them uh, is found in John chapter 6. We're going to read beginning with verse 48. We'll read 13 verses beginning with verse 48 of John chapter 6. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then skip to verse 66. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Did you catch it? Did you catch the outrageous statement Jesus made? You had to have caught it because he said it more than once. I mean, if it weren't bad enough that he said it one time, but he said it 
not once, not twice, but at least three times, and then alluded to it two more times. Did you catch it? Let me read it again just in case you didn't get it. This is Jesus. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Is that not outrageous? Do you not think that's outrageous? I mean, really. The only reason we're hesitating on that is because, well, this is Jesus, you know. And Jesus can spit in the punch bowl and it'll be just fine. In fact, it'll be cute as pie, right? But if I got up here on a Sunday morning and before even announcing my text, I came out here on the edge of the stage and I said, now folks, uh, this morning, if you want to go to heaven, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You folks, I know what you'd do. I know what you'd do. One, you'd go out quickly through whatever emergency exit was closest to you. And, and second, you would start calling all the leaders of our church to find me a different occupational address. I know this to be true. Because it's outrageous. And yet Jesus said this in, in these 13 verses. There are three times where he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Another two times that he alludes to eating my flesh and drinking my blood. And this comes from the mouth of Jesus. Now we might expect this from one of the actors on the Vampire Diaries or on the Twilight series. We might expect that from some of them. We might even expect it from the Walking Dead, but we don't expect this kind of language out of Jesus, do we? I mean, you know, haven't we come to expect things like love your neighbor as yourself out of Jesus? Or this is the greatest commandment, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. We expect that kind of thing out of Jesus. Or even love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. We, don't, we may not like that, but we can expect that out of Jesus. But eat my flesh and drink my blood, that's just downright gross. You know, couldn't he have backed off of that a little bit, made it a little less PG-13, you know what I'm saying? I mean... This is Jesus talking this way. It's a rather odd statement, I think. Very strange image. But it is the image that Jesus gave. And he was unapologetic. It wasn't like he said, now this is going to be offensive and I apologize in advance for saying this, but eat my flesh, drink my blood. That, that wasn't it at all. There was no apologetic prefix or an apologetic suffix to what Jesus said. He just came out and said it. And again, he said it more than once. So the question is, what did he mean? When Jesus used some graphic statement as gross and as offensive as eat my flesh, drink my blood, what on earth did he mean by this? Well, let's just kind of unpack this text and try to figure out what Jesus is talking about here. First thing I would say is this, that Jesus' words come in a chapter devoted to the breaking and receiving of bread. I tell 
the students that I teach at Bruton Parker College, when they come to take intro to New Testament or intro to Old Testament, I tell them, I said, one of the things that's important about studying the Bible and studying a particular passage of verses in the Bible is you have to look at it, what I call contextually. You have to look at it in its broader context. And what that really means is if you're studying a passage of Scripture, you you also want to study, in addition to that passage, the the verses that came before it and the verses that come after it because quite often they they lend an understanding to the text that you're actually studying. And what we find when we study the text that I read, those 13 verses I read, is that the verses that come before those, those and the ones that come after all feed into this same thing. In fact, chapters 6 and 7 cover a very common theme. It's a very simple theme. Eat bread. It's the theme of bread. You start out with John chapter 6 verse 1 and there's that familiar story. It's familiar because all four of the Gospels have this story. There are not many stories in the Gospels that you'll find in all four of them. But this story is in all four. Jesus and his disciples are somewhere in the area of the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee. They're in an isolated place. And there are several thousand people who are following him. The gospel writers tell us that there were 5,000 men, and this number did not include the women and the children, because in the first century, if you're counting a group of people, it was customary that you didn't count the women and you didn't count the children. And they say there are 5,000 men, so if you consider the women and the children too, it's not inconceivable that there may have been over 10,000 people there. And Jesus looks around, and they've been with him several hours. It's getting near dinner time, and he says to the disciples, do we have anything we can feed these folks to eat? And they look around. There isn't a Bradley's Big Buy anywhere close by. There's not a Walmart or Target Superstore anywhere nearby. Uh, The Kroger is way over there in uh, uh, Jerusalem, too far to go. And so there's no grocery store anywhere close by. And the disciples look around. They say, we don't don't even have enough for ourselves. We were thinking about going by the Chick-fil-A on the way back home. But but there's nothing even here for us. And then they they see this boy walking down the street. He's got a bag full of food. Uh, Food meaning five small barley loaves and two small fish. And they said, well, we've got this, but this is not enough to feed all these people. And Jesus said, oh, it'll be enough. Have the people sit down in groups of 50 and 100. And he said, let me have the bread. And he broke up the bread and he took the fish and he gave that bread to the disciples and they handed it out. And you remember the story. Not only did every person there get something to eat and not only were were they full, but the Bible says that the disciples went back through the crowd not wanting to waste anything and they gathered up 12 baskets full of what was left over. So the verses preceding John chapter 6 verse 48 through 50 are all about bread. When we get out of that story, Jesus still thinking about bread, he makes this statement. It's one of about 11 I am statements that are only in the Gospel of John. He says, I am, which made him think of God back in the Old Testament. Who are you? I am that I am. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he says, you need to eat 
This bread that comes from heaven. Now, so far, they're with him there. It's only when he gets to the place where he says, and, and my flesh is that bread and my, my blood is that drink and you are to take it in if you are to have life in you and if you are to remain in me. The passage after this text is in John chapter 7 and, and it finds Jesus and his disciples up Uh, back down at Jerusalem for the Feast of uh, Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. This was a Jewish festival that celebrated the 40-year wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. While they were wandering through the desert, they lived in, you and I would call them, tents. They called them tabernacles or booths. And so to commemorate that time, they had the, the festival of tabernacles. And guess what? Like most of our festivals, our holidays, uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of the coming together for the festivals had to do with eating and food. And if you're going to have eating and food, you've got to have some bread, man. You just got to have some bread. They had to have some bread. Bread was an essential component of all of their festivals. And so here you have this passage, John 6, verses 48 through 60, and before it, the feeding of 5,000 with what? Bread. And after it, the uh, attendance of Jesus and his, and his disciples at the Feast of Tabernacles and what was their bread. The whole thing, the theme is bread. John has gathered all of this material around the subject of bread because he wants to say something about Jesus and his connection to bread. But what does he mean? Some people take Jesus' words here in John 6 and they apply them to the Lord's Supper. You ever heard anybody do that? I mean, if you look at it, it it resembles the Lord's Supper. Jesus takes bread and he breaks it and he has the disciples distribute it. It's a lot like when we have Lord's Supper here six times a year. I will take the broken bread and I hand it to our deacons and our deacons distribute it to you. Certainly looks like the Lord's Supper. I can see where they get that this might be teaching about the Lord's Supper. Did you know, by the way, that there are four different viewpoints as to what the Lord's Supper means? Did you know that? Some of you did. I know you did. There's the view that's held by our Roman Catholic friends. Roman Catholics Take this scripture literally. Jesus really did want us to eat his flesh and he really did want us to drink his blood. And they believe that when in, in Catholic churches, when, when the priest gives you a, a bread wafer, that that bread, when you put it in your mouth or the priest puts it in your mouth, that bread literally changes from being bread to becoming the actual flesh of Jesus. And when you drink the wine or juice, that juice goes from being juice in your mouth to becoming the literal blood of Jesus. That's the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. And not only that, but they, many of them believe that when you take this bread and juice, which they believe turns into the actual body and blood of Christ in your mouth, that it confers salvation to you. This was not a belief that was held by Jesus nor by his disciples, although some of the believers were picking it up toward the end of the first century. And for that reason, if you read John's gospel, which was written in the last decade of the first century, he very conspicuously leaves out the Lord's Supper. 
Leaves it out. And he talks about things that happen all around it. Washing of the disciples' feet. But he doesn't mention anything about the Lord's Supper. Not only that, he doesn't mention anything about baptism. So baptism and the Lord's Supper, two ordinances. John just leaves them out. Many scholars believe that he left them out because toward the end of the first century, some Christians were placing more importance upon baptism and the Lord's Supper than what was warranted. And so John may have left it out. There's also the Lutheran view. Our Lutheran uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, they, they, uh, they don't believe that the bread and the wine literally change into the body and blood of Jesus, but what they do believe is that the body and blood of Jesus become present with the bread and the wine. And then there's the Presbyterian view. Presbyterians believe that when we take the bread and the juice, that the spiritual presence of Christ is all around, on top and under, and all the way around the bread and the wine as we take it. And then, of course, there's the view that that most of us Baptists hold, and that is that the bread and the wine are symbols, and only symbols, of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so every time we take the, the, the bread and the juice, they are designed not to give us salvation, but to remind us of what Jesus did so that we could have salvation. Some people believe this text is about the Lord's Supper, but there are two problems with that. Number one, Jesus never mentions anything about the Lord's Supper here. He doesn't mention anything about instituting the Lord's Supper uh, as a replacement for Passover. He will do that later on. But he does it on the Thursday night before he's crucified on Friday. This this event in John chapter 6 happens probably a year to two years before Jesus even instituted the Lord's Supper. So Jesus doesn't mention the Lord's Supper here, and he has not even instituted or started the Lord's Supper here. So while it may look like the Lord's Supper a little bit, I don't think that's what we're looking at here. But I do think that Jesus' words here rely on a principle that with which you and I are very familiar. It, they rely on the principle that what we ingest, that is what we consume, impacts how we act. In fact, it, it impacts who we are, how healthy we are, it impacts our thoughts, it, it can impact our words, it can impact how we act. You all have heard the cliche, you are what you eat. And it's true. There are certain things we eat. You, you parents of little children, you know this. If, if, your children, if your children have found a big bag of solid sugar and chocolate and they have eaten all that bag, you know it's going to impact the way your child acts. What we eat impacts how we act. And it's not just something that applies to kids. It applies to every one of us. And so Jesus here is picking up on a principle that you and I already are familiar with, and that is this. We are what we are filled with. What we are filled with impacts everything we do. It overflows into our behavior. And Jesus says, look, you're going to be filled with something, which is true. We're going to be filled with something. So Jesus says this. He says, be filled with me. 
He's speaking metaphorically or symbolically. It's not that he literally wants us to bite his finger off. That's not what he's saying. I mean, it's literally kind of what he's saying, but it's not what he means. And he's not talking about we could grab him up and cut his arm and, and let the blood drip into a cup. and drip. That, That's not what he's talking about. He is using graphic language, but he's using it to say to us, here is the most important thing you need in life. You need to be filled with me, Jesus says. Eating Jesus' flesh and drinking Jesus' blood refer to believing in Jesus' death on the cross as our only hope for salvation. What Jesus is saying is, just like you have, it is essential that you take bread in, and that bread impacts your life. It, it can determine how you act, who you are. Jesus said, be filled with me. And keep being filled with me. It's not just a one-time thing. Some people say, say well, we, we, he's talking about being filled. Uh, we need to be filled with him when we get saved. We do. When we receive Christ and we're saved, we do need to be filled with Christ. But this is an ongoing thing for Christians. We must continually be filled with Christ. Why? Because we are, we are acting upon what we are filled with. And if we are filled with him... then Christ-like behavior will flow over. So really the question is, what is it that fills your life? What is it that is filling, filling your time? What is it that fills your budget? Ask yourself this, ask myself this, does Christ have a prominent place in your calendar, in your timeline, in your checkbook, in your credit card statement? Does he have a prominent place in your thoughts and in your work and in your home? Are you being constantly filled with Christ? That's the question. We have learned in this series, Seriously Jesus, the Outrageous Demands of Jesus, we have learned, if nothing else, that sometimes Jesus would use graphic language in order to get our attention and, and motivate us to a certain course of action. And it was almost as if he had to do it in order to get our attention. And so he says, you've got to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood if you want to have life. He's talking about constantly consuming Jesus, his spirit, his teaching, his lifestyle, his character. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 1. He says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And then in Colossians 3, 3, he says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, what he's saying is we are, we are to have Christ in us and we are to be in Christ. How about that for a, a crazy saying? We need to both be both in Christ and we need to have Christ in us. I was reading about a pastor who had preached one Sunday and after the Sunday service, he took his family on a vacation to the beach. He had a little boy with him and the little boy was very analytical. He saw things concretely. And the little boy was having trouble with something that the father had said in his message. The father had said, that, that we, we need to be in Christ and Christ needs to be in us. And as he and his son were walking down the beach, the little boy looked up at his dad and he says, Dad, I, 
your sermon didn't make any sense to me. Which, by the way, happens to me all the time. But And the father said, what do you mean, son? He says, well, you said Christ needs to be in me and I need to be in Christ. How can I be in Christ and Christ be in me at the same time? It doesn't make sense. I don't get it. And over to the side of the beach, the father noticed uh, a, an empty bottle. It had a cork in it. And he walked over the bottle, he picked it up, he uncorked it, and he went down to the ocean. And he filled up the bottle with the ocean water, and he popped the cork back in it. And he slung the bottle way back out into the ocean. And together, he and his son looked at that bottle just bobbing back and forth in the waves. And the father said this. He said, son, he said, You in Christ and Christ in you is like that bottle out there. That bottle has the ocean in it, and it's in the ocean. You see, Christ wants to have so much of you and wants to be such an important part of your life that he is both in you and you are in him. So is that the case for you today? We're about to have our invitation. There are people in this room who have never, for the first time, have never, for the first time, invited Christ into your life to save you. Our invitation is an opportunity for you to come and receive Christ. Boy, I I hope you'll do that. I hope somebody will come and invite Christ into your life. The invitation, there, there, there are people here who are saved. You, you know you've been saved. You could tell me about it. You could tell the person next to you about it, but you've never been baptized. You've never joined a church. Or maybe you've been, you, you're a member of a church, you've been baptized, but since then you've moved away and, and perhaps the Lord is leading you to join this church. The invitation is a great time to make that decision public. Or maybe... Coming off of that last song that the praise band sang, fill me up, Lord, fill me up, Lord, fill me up, Lord. And me talking about being filled up with Christ, you just, you're just so full of, of the Lord's Spirit in your heart that you just want to come to the altar just to worship. Many of you could come to me and say, I have Jesus. My question for you and me is, does Jesus have you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the greatest need we have, you've told us, it's to have you in our lives and be filled up so fully with your presence that you overflow into our actions and our words and our thoughts. Lord, you want to be so prominent and such a preeminent part of our lives that not only can we say that you're in us, but we are in you. Lord, there are people here who do not know you. There are people here who know you, but they haven't been baptized, making their profession public. There there are decisions that need to be made. There's worship that needs to be brought before you and Lord I just pray that in this invitation people would respond to you I pray in Jesus name Amen